so we haven't been in Ephesians for a while. It feels like it's been about a year. It's actually only been about a month or so. But if you have been at Green Tree for a while, you know that last August we started a study uh, entitled In him in Christ, and we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to jump back into that today. Uh, the first uh, three chapters, we, we wrapped up right before Thanksgiving, and we're going to begin this morning, and uh, the week before Palm Sunday will be the Sunday that we conclude our study in Ephesians. So, to help uh, get kind of back up to speed and, and what's going on in the book of Ephesians, if you read it carefully, you will find time and time and time again the phrase, in Christ or in him. So we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? In the first three chapters of Ephesians, which we covered from August to November, uh, really looked at theology. What are we supposed to believe? How are we supposed to think as disciples of Jesus. What Paul's going to do in the next three chapters, which we're going to begin with this morning, is he's going to talk about how we live. So to, to kind of give you a couple of phrases maybe to kind of hang this hat on, in, in the first three chapters, Paul talked about God's new society. He talked about who we are collectively and what God was, was doing to create a new society. Chapters four through six, we're going to look at the, the standard, so to speak. How do, we, how do we live in that new society? In the first three chapters, they were mostly exposition. In other words, what should you believe? Theology proper. How do you think as a disciple of Jesus? The final three chapters are going to be exhortation. Here's how we ought to live. Uh, another way to say it is the first three chapters tell us what God has done, and the last three chapters are going to talk to us about how we ought to respond. Many of you may know the name Alan Hirsch. Alan Hirsch is a very well-respected uh, teacher and pastor and theologian and author. He's from Australia. And I recently came across a, a little about two-and-a-half-minute clip of him talking about this, how, how do we live our lives as believers? Because if you wanted just one word for the second half of Ephesians, the word would be discipleship. And so as I watched this video, I thought, you know, Hirsch does a really great job in just a couple of minutes of kind of setting this table of, of what Paul's talking about in the second part of Ephesians. So before we read this, I want you to just watch the screen and listen to what he says about this. So discipleship and disciple-making is, is foundational to any movement. No matter which movement you, you, you observe, you will find that they're obsessed pretty much with discipleship and disciple-making. Everyone's a disciple and no one ever stops being a disciple. And it appears that if we fail at this point, we have to fail every way. If we don't disciple, then the culture sure will. And it's doing a good job of it. And so we have to disciple over against the prevailing religious energies and powers of our day, which is, I think, the, the power of the market to determine our lives. The thing is, we're being profoundly discipled every day by a very sophisticated system called media, and advertising, trillions of dollars are put into it to manipulate our sense of self, who we are, our sense of worth, our identity. This is the task of advertising, is to create desire. It's really about desire. And if religion is anything, it's about desire. So that anyone who comes to Jesus in a Western context is already a well-discipled consumer. And it's a religion. Consumerism is being defined by what we consume. Uh, it is the, like I said, the search for meaning, identity, purpose, and belonging, tied to the consumption of products. The problem is that I think that, that consumerism is the alternative religion of our day. Uh, without doubt, is the secular religion of our day. Um, there is no such religious force in the West as powerful as consumerism. 
for me, the most simplest definition, I think one that gets to the core of what discipleship's about, is becoming more and more like Jesus, like the one I love. The way we worship Jesus is by obeying him. He calls us for utter obedience. Because in the Hebrew mind, the way you worship is to obey. It's not simply giving words. It's actually becoming like. In a sense, my, my becoming like Jesus is, is what I'm designed eternally to be like. When we shall see him, we shall be like him. Look what the early church does. They grow like wildfire because they've got disciples, not consumers. You cannot build a church on consumers. They will desert you at the moment's notice because they have no commitments beyond their own needs. You can't build on that. Jesus is quite wise in this. You can take his advice quite seriously. Quite literally, die. Jesus can take 12 and by extension the 70 and build a movement that changes the world on, on disciples. He could never have done that on consumers. You've got people who, who, will, who are willing to pay the price. They've already died to their own agendas. They're now living for, for the Lordship of Jesus. With that, you can build movements. So if Hirsch is right, and I think he is, if that's the, the world in which we live, we live in a world that, that is really uh, secular in its philosophy, and yet we claim to follow Christ, then that calls for a different kind of discipleship. And, and what does that look like? And how do we, how do we live our lives uh, as followers of Jesus? That's what we want to get into in these next three chapters in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, hear the word of God. Paul is writing, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us. We ask that you would uh, direct our attention, uh, our mindset, uh, our thoughts, uh, away from all else and center upon you. Uh, Lord, as we have sung, you love us. Uh, you have given yourself for us in the person of our Lord Jesus. You have purchased our salvation. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together, acknowledging what you have done in order to save our lives and give us life eternal. So, Father, it's good that we're here. It's good that we, we gather together uh, as a community to worship you. And so now, Lord, we pray that we would worship you with our minds, that you would teach us, instruct us, you would correct us, that you would discipline us in the, in the right sense of that word, that you would grow us up in our faith. Lord, for some that don't know you, we pray that you would introduce yourself uh, to us this morning uh, with the intention, Lord, that, that your life would flow uh, in us and to us and then through us into this world. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how will we create a community of faith that reflects the unity and peace of the Trinity? That's kind of what we're going to try to unpack a bit this morning. Uh, because Paul is talking to us not just as individual Christians, but he's talking to us as a community 
of faith. But we are to reflect something. We're not to reflect uh, our own values and our own morals and our own politics or what we think about this, that, or the other. We're to reflect the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I think he sums up this goal by saying, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, what does that mean, and, and how do you unpack that? And I think he does it very succinctly and very accurately in verse 3, where he says this to, to the church collectively, to all of us. He says, you ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if you think about that for just a second, there are three key words in that, that sentence that we've underlined there. The first is attitudinal. He says, you ought to be eager. Leave no stone unturned. Uh, leave no effort uh, not expended. The, the effort that you put forth ought to be continuous and diligent. Is that how I look at my faith? Is that how I look at, at the community of believers of which I live? Am I eager for this church? Or is it something that just kind of passes through my mind, you know, when, on the way and then maybe on the way home and that was nice and that was helpful and good. And I even visit the website every once in a while and, and listen to a podcast here or there. Uh, but, but by and large, then I go on with my life. Or is it something that directs my attention? Is it something that, that corrals part of, of who I am and saying, I want to be eager that Christ would be glorified and honored in the congregation in general? He says our, our, our mission, so to speak, is the unity, but not our unity, not a, a, a unity that we can create, but the unity of the Holy Spirit. And the unity of the Holy Spirit, if you think about the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that unity is, is one. And we're going to see that word one in just a few minutes. Our mission is, is unity together that reflects the unity of the Trinity, and if that happens, there, there will be peace. Now, peace there means relationships are in a healthy place. It doesn't mean just the absence of conflict. It means that, that love and care and genuine nurture of one another are, are taking place in our lives. So Paul says that if you want to know what we're after here and how we're going to create this community, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. So that, that's wonderful, but how, how do we go about doing that? How do we actually live that out on a day-in and day-out basis? And that's where I want to give three observations out of this text that I think if we apply them, will help us move in the right direction, both individually as disciples of Jesus as well as collectively as a congregation. The first is this. Paul wants us to have an accurate identity. If you look at verse 1, he identifies himself, and then he talks to some other folks. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he was under house arrest. This is one of what we call the prison epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Those four letters were all written while Paul was incarcerated. So yes, Paul is a prisoner for Christ. But there's something deeper there, and, and he says as much in other places, and we're not going to look at all those other verses this morning. You'll have to take my, uh, you have to trust me and, and take my word for it. But there are many other places where Paul identifies himself as a prisoner, not just for Christ, but of Christ. Paul understood that he belongs to Jesus. That when he puts his faith in Jesus as Savior, he's also he's attaching himself to him as the one who is now his Lord. And I have to ask the question, is that how I see my relationship with Christ? Do the chains of the gospel, metaphorically speaking, hold me to Christ? 
Am I committed to his lordship in my life? Every time I see one of these bumper stickers that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, I, you know, I kind of want to give him a little love tap, you know, going about 20 miles an hour and get their attention and say, that, Jesus doesn't want to be your co-pilot. Jesus isn't going to be your co-pilot. He has no interest in being your co-pilot. He wants to be your Lord. That's why he died to save you so that he could care for you and you would trust in him completely. Do the chains of the gospel hold me? I am, am I in the custody of the word of God in the Holy Spirit? Do I understand that I am not my own? Paul says that this collective thing as church is not going to work if we don't understand that we're a prisoner of Christ. But secondly, under this, he also wants us to understand that community is a big part of who we are. So he goes on to say this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And, and the word you there is third person plural. Uh, so it means all of you together. I want all of you, the entire congregation, the entire group, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which all of you have been called. If we lived in the South, how would we say this? But if we really wanted to emphasize it, how would we say it? All y'all. I, 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 the, 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 first, the first job I ever had, uh, I, I worked as a student ministry in, in a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I knew that we were in trouble when one of the parents would come in and say, all y'all. I knew that I was included in that too. They, they were emphasizing there wasn't anybody that wasn't about to, to get a whooping or something because we were, we, we were all in for it, right? So this is all y'all. Paul says, understand that this only works when collectively we understand our responsibility to one another. It's not an accurate way for me to identify myself as a lone disciple of Jesus. That's how I start. I belong to Christ, but I also belong to all y'all. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. We've already studied this passage, but he makes this very clear. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man, one new person in the place of the two, so making peace. And reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Do we understand that we belong to Jesus and we belong to one another? Hall of Fame football coach Bill Parcells tells a great story of when he was in high school. And like a lot of professional athletes, he played several different sports because he was just very athletic. And he played basketball. And his, his sophomore year, which used to be your first year in high school back in the olden days when it was 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, he made the varsity his sophomore year. And he got a lot of playing time. He was a very good basketball player uh, before he moved on to his football career. And the first day of practice, the coach got everybody together. And he said, we have one rule on this team and only one rule. Nobody talks to the officials ever, period, end of paragraph. Now, I could not have played on that basketball team. It would have been impossible for me to do that because I love chatting with the referee at the hockey rink every once in a while. Um, sometimes relatively animated. But he went around and said, does everybody understand? Does everybody agree? You're part of this group. You don't talk to the official. Got it, coach. Off they go. About the third game of the season, Parcells is diving for a ball. It's going out of bounds. He hits it. It hits the other guy from the other team. It goes out of bounds. So it's, it's, it's his ball, but the referee points the, points the other way. And Parcells hops up and he says something to the ref, mumbles something, and walks off. And the coach goes, you sit down. <laughs> Takes him out of the game. 
And he sits the rest of the game. Comes to practice, practice the next day. Coach gets everybody around. He goes, now listen, I want to say just one thing before we start practice. Parcells, get out of here. And he kicks him out of practice. He doesn't let him practice. The next day they get everybody. He goes, I want everybody together. I got one thing to say. Parcells, get out of here. Three days in a row he made him skip practice. And if you want to torture an athlete and a competitor, don't let him play. And after the third day, he went into the locker room. And he made him sit in the locker room while the team was practicing. After the third day, he walked in and said, you got to understand something, son. It's not about you. This is about all of us. And you're a reflection of all of us. Do you get it? And he said, I never spoke to another official. And if you watch Parcells on the sidelines, very rarely in football did he ever lose his cool with the officials. That lesson sunk in. Brothers and sisters, we are together in this. This is not about you individually. This is not about me individually. This is about understanding, having an accurate identity. We belong to Christ, but we also belong to one another. Secondly, we need to understand not only that we must have an accurate identity, but we must foster the qualities of our calling. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There are five qualities there that we need to, to embrace as part of our lifestyle, not to earn our salvation, but as a result of God's grace. If we want to praise God in our lives, Paul says, Here, here's how you do it. This is the manner in which you live. This gives glory. It reflects God's glory back to himself. The first is humility. Thinking appropriately about yourself. A word that we, is common in our vernacular is modest. No matter how good you are, you ought not be prideful. And Paul says that's, that's true in the church. You, you ought to be you know, sober-minded and, and evaluate yourself appropriately. I remember one of the first years I played hockey, I was actually the MVP on my hockey team. It's the only time I've ever been MVP of anything. It was the, the second or third year I played hockey. And I played goalie half the games, and I played out the other half of the games. And only playing out half the games, I still was the highest scorer on my team. Never happened again. We weren't a very good hockey team, quite frankly. But I was MVP, and at the banquet at the end of the year, they took every MVP name, they put them in a hat, they drew out two names, and the two names they drew out got to go to the Blues summer hockey camp up at the old Winterland Ice Rink up by the airport. You guys that know hockey know what I'm talking about. And mine was one of the two names that they pulled out. I got to go to be the blue, at the Blues hockey camp. So I got my gear, I get up there, I get on the ice, and I'm Mr. MVP, and I'm going to show everybody. And there's, you know, like 40, 50 kids at this camp, and we get out on the ice, and we just start kind of skating and warming up. And it dawned on me very quickly very quickly that I was not the best person in this group. I was like average, maybe slightly above average, maybe. I might have been a C plus, but it probably was closer to a C minus. I realized there were a lot of other people out there that were just as good or better than me. Paul says, that's the attitude you ought to have with your life as a disciple. You're not the best. You're not the brightest. You're not the, God's salvation does not hinge upon you. You're part of it. But you ought to think appropriately about yourself. You ought to be humble. Secondly, he says, the church of Jesus Christ is also built on gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not, well, if I, if I can't get my way, if I'm not strong enough, I'll, I'll be kind of nice about it. Gentleness is strength under control. Look at how Jesus says this to his disciples when he's inviting them to follow him. In Matthew's gospel, it says this, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus says, I'm the one that's pulling this whole thing and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and I'm, and I'm humble. I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus' yoke isn't easy and his burden isn't light in my own strength, but in his strength it is. And the one who is the strongest 
the one who is the most powerful, the one who spoke universes into existence is the one who is most gentle. And he calls us to that same temperament with one another. Thirdly, he says one of the qualities of our calling is patience. And this is one where you want to pray for the pastor, pray for this. I need patience. I'm not a very patient person because patience doesn't just mean that, that I kind of wait for things to get better, but that I actually have a kind attitude in the process, that, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm nice <laughs> while allowing God's spirit to, to work on you and, and to work on me. I'm not demanding I'm not insisting that you move faster in, in growing as a disciple than me, and I'm going to point out all your failures while ignoring my own, but rather I'm going to be patient and understand that it's a lifelong process. The day that I'm completely perfect is the day I open my, high, my eyes and I'm in heaven, and I, and, and I see Jesus for, for the first time face to face. Up until that moment, I'm a work in progress, and so are you. So, so Paul says a church, a congregation, a spiritual family has got to be filled with patience, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And then he takes patience to another level. And he says, bearing with one another. And the, the phrase I've used there is a mutual tolerance. Uh, somebody told me about 10 years into my marriage, and I wish they, wish they had told me this on my wedding day. They said, mirrors make great marriages. Mirrors make great marriages. What was he telling me? He was saying, look at yourself. Don't bother looking at Cindy. Look at yourself. If you want your marriage to be great, you work on Tom and let God worry about Cindy. That's one of the best pieces of the marriage advice I've ever gotten in my life. My job is not to fix Cindy. My job is to seek to grow in my faith and knowing that I've got a long way to go, but the closer I get, the better off my relationship with other people will be. So I have a tolerance for Cindy. Cindy has some kind of funny quirks that sometimes I don't think are all that funny. And I know this is shocking to you, but I have some funny quirks that every once in a while she doesn't think is very funny. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. And when we were younger, we would do this, right? The goal was to win. The goal was to be the better arguer. The, the, the goal was to, to make sure the other person said, okay, you're right and I'm wrong. And, and all of that, most of that, 98% of that is gone. And I chalk it up to two things. First of all, we're just flat out tired. <laughs> You know, you get home, you're like, you want to fight? No. <laughs> not really. You want to go to the gym? No. <laughs> not really. <laughs> what do you want to do? I want to eat ice cream. That's what I want to do. I'm not going to, but that's what I want to do. Right? But then you look at each other, you go, that stuff that used to do this, you go, ah, she's kind of funny and cute when she does that. And she does the same thing with me. We just tolerate each other. Why? What am I going to do? Go find somebody better at this point in my life? Are you out of your mind? There's no way in the world. Anything's going to be like five steps down. So I have mutual tolerance. Paul says that the church needs to be a group of people. Look at one another and go, I'm going to cut you some slack. I'm going to relax a little bit. Not that I'm going, to, I'm going to say if I do something wrong, somebody does something wrong, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but that I understand that we're in this together. And so we offer tolerance to one another. And then the last thing he says here under these qualities that we ought to foster is love. And not like, you know, just this love where I feel nice about you, but a consistent and constructive seeking the welfare of others. That I am intentional about wanting the very best for you. And the choices that I make uh, with the words I use and the attitude I have towards you. I I got this lesson again last week. I was listening to a guy give a a speech and he was talking about, do you, if you're a leader, do you really want the best for the people around you? For the people that are are involved in in your, whether it's a business or, or a school or a ministry, as the leader, do you really want them 
the, the, the very best for them? Are you always seeking their welfare no matter what? It's a great question for all of us. I actually uh, had to go get an MRI this week. And I don't think it's a big deal. I, I'm not in any pain or anything. Like, don't anybody panic. And, and, and you can put me on the prayer list if you want, but you don't need to because of that. But I've never had an MRI before. Who's had an MRI? Okay, so the noisiest thing I've ever experienced in my life. You guys, you're in medical sales. I'm going to point out Nick Barry. For, we got to have a private conversation. If you figure out a way to make that a quiet experience, you're going to pay off Green Tree's building in like two years. It's unbelievable I, that we haven't figured this out. It's so noisy. But I call up and I said, I've never had one of these. Well, how do I need to prepare? Because the doctor I talked to told me to drink wine before I went. The only problem was it was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I don't think I should be drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I get on the phone with this wonderful woman, and I said, tell me about this, and what do I experience? And she, she tells me what to do. And she, she can't say, go get some drugs. I guess that's against the law. But fundamentally what she's saying is, go get some drugs. It'll calm you down. So I get done with the conversation. I said, okay, I'm going to call my physician back and see if I can get a little something to take before the test. And, it, and she said, that would be great. Now, if she just put a period there, it would have been fine. But she didn't stop there. She said, that, if, if you get, get something to calm you down, that would be really great because that thing is really small and tight. And I think I literally said, where is the love in that statement? <laughs> you're getting ready to stuff me in the Stargadine can, and, and, you're, and that's the last thing you leave me with? And then I think about sometimes how I talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think about the fact that I maybe or maybe am not so concerned with their well-being. And I deliver the information in a way that actually can be harmful to them. And I share things with them, maybe not out of love, but out of a self-righteousness. Or maybe even if I'm honest, out of a self, uh, 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 I share out of a sense of, of anger. And Paul says, you got to foster these qualities. Because you're in community together and because that community is a witness for the grace of God. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and loving one another consistently is the model for our lives. So if we have our identity, if we know what these qualities are, that leads us to embrace the model, which is my third and final observation here. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul puts it this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What do you think is the main word in that paragraph? One. Right? It's not a bunch. It's one. And, and, and if you look at that list of seven words carefully, Paul's describing a oneness on two levels. The first is he's talking about us as a community, and the second is he's talking about the Trinity. So there's one body. That's, that, that's the church. Jesus says, there, I'm not creating a bunch of different, there are different locations of the church, but I'm not, I'm not creating a bunch of different institutions. I'm creating one group of folks, and I'm calling it the church. And there's one hope. What's our hope? That Jesus has died for our sins. He's been resurrected, and he's gone to prepare a place for us, and he's going to take us there for all of eternity. We're going to experience his love and his grace and his mercy. That's our one hope. What's our one faith? That Christ has done it, that he's strong enough to overcome my sin and your rebellion and our, our anger against him and, and call us into a relationship with him. And by faith, we trust what he's done and we receive that new life. And that one baptism, whether it's a baptism of, of a small child looking to the future or an adult being baptized, points to the fact that we are in Christ. That's it. That's us. 
But what's that built upon? Somebody's good idea? No, look at what this verse says. There is one spirit. There is one Lord, that's Jesus, and there is one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What Paul is saying here is that God has provided us with a model. And when our lives are built on an accurate identity and we're fostering the qualities of our calling, calling, we will not only embrace that model, but we will reflect the, the unity and the glory and the beauty of the Trinity to the world around us. It will reinforce the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think our application this morning is what I call a refrigerator list. And I understand that you don't always have refrigerator lists uh, anymore. A lot of times you just kind of put it on your phone and you look at your phone. Uh, but in just a minute, we're going to have a complete refrigerator list. And if you want to get out your phone and take a picture of it, I would encourage you to do that. If that's a place where you see something all the time, because that's what a refrigerator list is. It knows you're going there for food several times a day. And so you put, you know, don't forget you have a doctor's appointment or, you know, thank you or whatever the note is. So, so this is what we got to remember collectively together. The first is simply this, to whom do I belong? I belong to Jesus and I belong to you, period. And I'm not even going to go outside of Green Tree Community Church. We could talk about the kind of church universal around the world, but to me, that's just, that's too big a nut to crack. We're right here. It's us in this community, in this time, in St. Louis, Missouri. This is our generation, and we belong to Christ, and we belong to each other. And I've got to remember that every day. Secondly, I've got to remember these qualities to which I have been called, that God longs to see my life growing in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in, in bearing and in, in mutual tolerance and in loving each other unconditionally. And then thirdly, that I understand that it's my father's model, that there aren't a bunch of different options out here, that this is what God has created, and he's created it for our good. And so he's given us one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, based on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We live in a culture that says community is about me. It's about getting what I want, and as long as I'm happy, that I can kind of look around and, and make sure other folks are happy. The problem is that, that lacks truth, but it also means that, that I have no responsibility other than to take care of myself. And if the gospel is anything, it is the antithesis of that. Jesus was completely selfless when he went to the cross because he wanted to create a new community for himself, for all of eternity, and he wanted you to be part of that. What we're going to celebrate here in about two minutes is that very fact that God's grace is building a community of disciples, of believers. And we embrace that and we praise God for that. And as we grow in that, we reflect the glory that is in the Trinity and that unity and that peace. And the world begins to scratch its head and say, maybe there's a different way. And our lives begin to mature and begin to grow in faith. So however you create your refrigerator list, right, there it is right there. God's called us to himself, but he's called us to one another that the world would see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unconditional sovereign love. The fact that you have planned from all of eternity to save lost folks like us that your grace and your mercy knows no bounds, no limitations, that even when we have resisted you, you have, you have destroyed our resistance by loving us in such a way that we simply had to say yes. 
Father, we ask that we would see that gift as the opportunity to help build a community that reflects that to the world. Father, help us to embrace discipleship, to understand that, yes, we are saved to a relationship with you, an individual relationship. Uh, I belong to you, but also, Lord, to see that we belong to one another. And that part of what you call us to is to building up, to strengthening the body of Christ. So, Father, we thank you that we can come to your table this morning and see this right uh, in front of our very eyes. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, embed your lesson deep in our hearts and our minds today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.